Hello, my name is Tina Camilla and this is The Starting Block, a weekly conversation on science and society with an emphasis on disinformation, data and democracy. Before we start, I'd like to let you know that the transcript and credits for this conversation are available on the sidelines, the supplement to every main edition of The Starting Block. Now in the next lane, Sheena Baharudin, an assistant professor of literature at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia campus. Our topic this week being a multilingual multimedia creator. Ready? Let's go. Okay. Let's start with a little bit about your background, both as an artist and uh, as an academic. So hello, hi, my name is Sheena Baharudin. And um, I would say that, you know, as a performer or as a writer, I think it has been going on for quite a while. We're looking at about roughly about 10 years and quite interesting, however, that's about the same length um, when it comes to my role as an academic. And why I say that is because I studied literature and then I went on to teach literature and now I'm still doing literature. But of course, you know, sort of adding in the creative writing. So um, the background would be in a sense that um, how I got into the creative art scene would be as a performer or a performance poet. So I started, if I'm not mistaken, 2006. I think that's about 15 years now. And um, right now I'm teaching at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. As an academic who's also a performer, I'm really curious about how much of your technical academic side, um, how much does that influence your performance and vice versa? How much does your experience as a stage performer or as a, as a creator online, how much does that influence how you um, extend that knowledge to your students? So actually, I think it's, it's, it's a case of, um, you know, the, the chicken and the egg because I'm not mm. really sure what influenced which role. And, and what I meant by that is that how I approach poetry from the very beginning, I guess if you want to sort of narrow it down, it will be as a student, right? As a student mm. of literature and poetry. And um, whenever I wrote a poem, I came from a background, from, from this context where I wanted to sort of apply what I've learned um, before as a student, and we're referring to the technical requirements and all of that, uh, the technical features of poetry. However, what I've noticed, you know, over the past 10 years, and and why I say 10 years, it's because of, of this role that I've taken as a performance poet, where I feel that whenever I do write a poem, and whenever, whenever I do decide to perform it, there is a very strong sense of responsibility attached to it yeah I mean why do you perform when you can actually just write and get it published right why do you need to be present and be physically present to to um, respond to certain situations and I think that has to do with my sense of responsibility and that can only come if you come from a discipline in this in a sense spoken about poetry where there is a very strong idea that it the body is political mm. right and what you mean matters and when you are performing something you're not just saying it it's not just a declaration not just a statement but you are acting it out mm. and and you are doing it's an action right really 
Yeah, so for me, I find that really interesting. Um, and this is more of being self-reflexive, lah, mm. right? So prior to this, you don't really think, you're just angry, you write something, <laughs> and then you just vomit. <laughs> but um, nowadays, I find myself doing a little bit more research, and that's really interesting, because then I sort of ask myself, when did it become much more research-intensive, as opposed to just writing it because you feel that you need to write something? So now I do a little bit more research. It takes, it's a little bit more time consuming compared to before. And I guess for the past two years, because of the fact that there are no more spaces to perform because of the pandemic, suddenly what you are putting yourself, you know, putting your work out there is on social media. And what we know about the internet is that once it's out there, it's no longer yours, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you need to be really sure. <laughs> The words that you choose, the words that, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that, that is where I feel that there is this really interesting, you know, intertwining convergence of two roles that, that I've had for quite a while. Mm. Um, and as a multilingual uh, poet, um, where one of the languages that you speak is English, you have not just the ability to access a large part of the internet, but it's a very distinct privilege as well because a lot of uh, Malaysians for instance even though we do have a pretty good grasp of the English language I think the more technical more especially like with academic work that's in English it's it's not accessible English what is your thought especially because you're also a published poet and you've had uh, your works translated to other languages as well, right? What are mm -hmm. your thoughts on the importance of translation and other forms of accessibility, for instance, um, for those who are um, deaf or hard of hearing and stuff like that? You know, the way that I am going to respond to your question is just based on my own personal experience as, you know, a consumer of poetry, somebody who consumes poetry daily. Mm. And, and what I've what I've come to is this understanding that yes, translation is very important and you know, translation goes hand in hand with accessibility anyway. Mm. And yeah, at the same time, if you really look at this niche area of poetry, there is always going to be something that's going to be lost in translation, mm. right? What you're doing is you're reading something based on the translator's understanding of the piece something's going to be lost. However, to be able to have that is better than nothing at all, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, so that's where I'm coming from. And yet, um, and however, I guess, I think it's this year because of this project that I had with my poetry school or Elaine Foster and also the deaf poetry community, the deaf community specifically, it did really... Um, teach me a lot in terms of how we have sometimes, um, not to say ignored, but I think we've sort of neglected the idea of what accessibility is, mm. that it's not just, you know, it's not just about languages, the text, right? It's about those, as you say, you know, the heart of hearing. I mean, what do they have access to? Because communication is not just about the text. Mm. It is about what is being spoken as well, right? And there's a lot of that that is not accessible for those who, let's just say, if there is no closed caption and, and others as well. And I think 
in that sense, that has really taught me a lot about the importance of trying to make one's work as accessible as possible. Mm-hmm. It's not a hundred percent perfect. I mean, there's no such thing as perfection anyway. I think it's more of just trying to get there. So number one, loss in translation. Number two, that it is a still a continuous effort. Mm. Do you have any words um, in Malay, especially? I love this that, question. <laughs> that you think is just completely untranslatable. Okay, so I have a few favorite ones, <laughs> actually. So um, right now, um, I'm trying to learn French because I think French is a beautiful language. And somehow it, it sort of opens up this door to the Romance languages. So um, that's one. Um, I can understand a little bit of Arabic and of course Bahasa as well as English, right? Mm. But again, I think this exploration of Bahasa Melayu or the Malay language only came um, quite recently. When I say recently, we're looking at two to three years mm. old, young. Um, so yes, my favorite words are all of them. Okay, so I'm going to share with you... <laughs> Five, okay? Very okay. quickly, five. Four of them are in Bahasa Melayu. Okay. And one of them is in Arabic, but can also be found in Bahasa, right? Okay. So we'll start with the Arabic one, and that is Rahim. Rahim? Yeah, Rahim. Right? Is it the same uh, one with the Malay Rahim? No, it's not. No? Okay. That's the thing, right? So um, Rahim is an Arabic word which means compassionate and mercy, and I find it you know, like I've used that word before and I find it really difficult to sort of translate it to English and by the end of it, I sort of, is untranslatable, right? Because it means so many things in there. So that's one word. Um, and for the ones in Bahasa, okay. So let's check if you, could, if you know those words, yeah? So we'll start with um, Chakrawala. It's something solar related, no? <laughs> Celestial <Sky>. body. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. right, yeah. So um, Chakrawala, of course, has its roots in um, the Sanskrit language as well. Mm-hmm. So celestial bodies, I find it really difficult to translate that. I think it's untranslatable as well. I like the word sunyi. Yeah, sunyi. It's not quiet. No, that's sunya. No, no. exactly. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, sunyi is a loaded word because it also has this feel of just being completely alone mm, there's this you know? ambience yes there's an ambience to it so i love sunyi i love rindu we all know rindu mm. like if you were to translate that into english what would it be like what is it there's a portuguese word saudade that's also yeah, like i think it's comparable it's probably not exactly the same yeah. but there's an element of longingness to that Correct. Missingness. Yeah. And the fact that we don't understand, you know that there are more layers to that word yeah. anyway, right? Yeah. So yeah. And one more, halus. Because even in Bahasa, there are so many ways to use that word. So it can mean something that is in terms of um, textual sort mm-hmm. of experience. So it is not rough, it's mm. smooth, right? But halus can also be applied to language, Bahasa halus. Ah. So euphemism, anything that is not meant to offend. And you also have makhluk halus, those who belong, the creatures that belong in a supernatural world. So there are so many ways to actually use it. I love the word halus. And wow. it, the meaning is associated with the way it sounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the minute when you, you know, halus, and it yeah. just disappears. Oh, beautiful. It, it, it's a physical word. It is. Oh. And this is why I love having conversations with you, Sheena. I always learn oh something. 
you know, and I think that these words that you're introducing, it really shows Bahasa Malaysia, Bahasa Melayu as as a beautiful language. And I and I feel like um I know that we learned that, you know, Malay used to be like the lingua franca in okay. our region, right? I don't know what, what happened along the way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But I also am so fascinated by by how the language evolved because there's a difference between the way we learn the language mm-hmm. in school, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a difference in the way we use it in traditional media, like super formal Malay that you hear in the news. And there's a different way that we use it casually and online like it's so it's such a it's almost like a completely different language and if you're not if you only learn Malay in school and you don't speak it you cannot understand the Malay that's uh, used online why does it seem so like does English have something that's comparable to that there's also criticism that Malay is just not an academic language or not language of knowledge just because of how the different forms it's presented what what's going on Sheena tell me <laughs> I think you know you know what this is this is you know like okay I completely understand I have that same feel of just confusion and just being overwhelmed what on earth is going on and what has happened so far because if you were to look at the this Bahasa Malaysia that is used on mainstream media, that's not how we speak, right? Right? Um, And then once you start comparing that with social media, then clearly that's a whole different creature altogether. And I think that's really interesting. And it's an interesting question because it really sort of um, highlights the potential reasons behind it. Now, I have to give you some context. Like I mentioned earlier, my curiosity for Bahasa only started all about two, three years ago. And that is because I really had to unpack a Mm. lot about how I respond to the language myself um, since I was young. Mm. And um, to put words into it, you know, to my lived experience was this, quite some time, I was pretty ashamed to be Malay. And that, yeah, yeah, that's why I said I need to unpack a lot. Yeah, I needed to do just that. There's a sense of shame and it has something to do with this sort of um, idea of what a Malay is and how we're supposed to look like and how we're supposed to behave. And I couldn't really fit in any of those boxes, right? And because of that, I started sort of distancing myself from from the language itself and just start speaking English because also because that's the language that we speak in in the house, right? Mm. (laughs) At home, right? However, you know, like three years ago, I told myself, you know, this, this is crap. <laughs> like, like, what on earth is happening to actually be in a position where you're ashamed of, of this, this part, of, which is part of your identity of who you are, right? Mm. And then when I start looking into it, which is really interesting, because I did my research, thanks to you. <laughs> I, did, I did my research and I and surprisingly, this idea of Bahasa Malaysia was sort of formulated and conceptualized in the 1980s mm-hmm. because of certain educational education policies, you know, and it's quite similar to the ones in uh, the Bahasa Indonesia case. Mm-hmm. 
in Asia. So where you have Bahasa Indonesia that is used to sort of unify the country, um, there is this sense of wanting to standardize the language because different states have different way, different dialects, right? Yeah. Using language. But um, quite, um, I guess, I wouldn't say it's unique, but I guess that's the situation in Malaysia where not only do you see this language, which is quite different from the way that you communicate every day, but also because of that whole idea that comes with it, that this is the language of the majority in the country. Mm. This is the language that you're supposed that you have to learn. Mm. And I remember when I was in school, I didn't like Bahasa because it's all just grammar. Right. Right? Yeah, it's just grammar. That There's no soul in it. Yeah. And it was only when I was 17 years old when I had to go for my SPM, that final examination, that important examination of our lives, right? <laughs> that um, the teachers just started giving us all of this classical Malay text. Mm. And it was so beautiful. And I had no idea that it can be so beautiful. So I found myself in a place where I was completely confused. <laughs> You know, like I did my SPM, that examination, um, as a 17-year-old when I was, uh, I think it was in 1999. And that was the first time that I get to see that aesthetic use of the language as opposed to just practical, functional, it's just there for a reason. And if The imbuhan. Yeah, I know. It's such a pain in the behind. <laughs> right, yeah. So, um... So now when, when you look at mainstream media and how they use it, it still holds on to this idea that, that to use Bahasa Malaysia, that is the way for you to communicate to the Malay people and also to the Malaysian at large, but you know that it's not the case, mm. right? Because the minute when you take, it, take the language outside of mainstream media, people just put in so like Hokkien, Cantonese, Tamil, English, Everything is just there. So yeah, so yeah. that disconnect seems mm. a lot. There's a bit of a resurgence lately, mm. right? Like with mm. like publications like Suara, for instance, where I think it's bringing back that kind of quality writing um, that doesn't really hold on too much to like the super technical, super precise grammatical Malay right. and like right. let it have its own so <laughs> yes <laughs> and, I, and I, love I mean that. I, yeah I love that too because I feel that you know one thing that is beautiful about at least you know Bahasa Melayu because back then that was that, that's the term for it right Bahasa Melayu that it is the lingua franca and it's really easy to learn it's almost skeletal and it, it mutates and it moves around I, I love it you know and the minute when you come up with this idea of Bahasa Baku, Bahasa Malaysia is Bahasa Baku, which, by the way, is part of my research, thanks to you, Tina Carmelia, <laughs> that Dewan that Bahasa and Pustaka is supposed to be the preserver of the language, mm. right? They say that there are people who have made the mistake of just um, calling it Bahasa Baku instead mm. of Bahasa Baku, frozen <laughs> language. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely. Is, yeah, because I do believe wholeheartedly that the Malay language is incredibly fluid. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So for you as um, um as someone who 
understands you know more than one language and who who lives in a multilingual community multicultural community um do you think that that makes it a hindrance to to master any single language for us as, as Malaysians like you said with the Malay language for instance like we're throwing in so many different words from different languages as well into our sentence like a sentence can have three four different languages at any one time right even when we speak english is the same and when we speak mm. malay is the same hokkien is also like riddled with two three other languages i love hokkien, right? by the way. I love hokkien. <laughs> right. so i mean i suppose the insinuation behind this question is also maybe about language mastery i don't know whether that's specifically what i am championing i don't think we need to be like super perfect and fluent in a single language yeah okay so again you know whatever that you know the way that i am responding to your question is just how i see things and mm. what i meant by that is that even now like I have been invited to sessions that are conducted um, in Bahasa and I struggle with it. And it's a really, it's a blow to one's sense of self mm. when you're invited to speak in Bahasa and you just realize, I don't have the word. I, mm. don't, I can't really think about the word. You know, like I, I'm thinking in English, what on earth is happening, right? But that's another conversation altogether. But the point being is that, have I mastered Bahasa? No. Does it stop me from mastering the language? Obviously, no. Mm. Am I still learning? Yeah. How long will it take? I have no idea. But um, the idea is that maybe right now, maybe there should be this sense of looking at it from a different point of view, a different perspective. Instead of thinking of mastering a language, because even now I would not even call myself a master of English. Like that's a really weird thing to say, right? But maybe what we, we should be thinking about is how to master I'm not really a fan of that word as well, but how to figure out to the best way to communicate, mm. right? And in order to think about that, you need to think about who you're addressing and who you're having this this, this conversation with, mm. you know? And if that's English, okay, that's great. That's in English. If it's in Bahasa, it's in Bahasa. And one thing about language is that continuously changes is very dynamic and mm. fluid. So the learning will never end. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know um, how comfortable you are um, if I ask you about um, um, Malayness and Arab culture. Because mm -hmm. I think that there's that, like with that resurgence of like Malay literature, there's also this falling back into em embracing Arab culture um, and, and, and incorporating that into the identity of being Malay, like using a lot more Arabic words when there are already Malay words um, right. for, for certain particularly cultural matters. Obviously, language is part of culture and identity as well. I'm just fascinated by that by that phenomenon um, because I don't think we were that hung up with the Arabic language or culture um, until quite recently. I, I actually don't think it's recent. And, and why okay. I say that is because I was raised in Trangano, right? Mm. So I was in Trangano since the late 1980s, which is pretty much around the same time when you start to have this sense of, you know, Malay Muslim that's part of the rhetoric right the, the idea of mm. what makes a malay uh, or what makes a malay in the first place so i was in Trangano, which is you know for those who don't have the context you know it was during that time when you know, 
pass. So, so I went through when the state government was um, Barisa National and then passed, took over and so on and so forth. And then somehow this idea and even the use, like you said, you know, when we started including more Arabic words in there, and there's a strange sense of what makes a Malay and what is a Malay identity that you can't really separate that Islam part anymore. And again, it's, some, it's one of those things that I actually address in my PhD thesis as well, where I said that, you know, it's one thing for sure, and I don't think this is something that's completely new. People have talked about this, that it is political, it is politicized. Mm. You're looking at a specific narrative. When you think about the Malay civilization, the first thing, because that's what's being taught in, in school anyway, right? So you have Batu Basura in Trunganu, like that is the beginning of the Malay civilization. And then you have the Malacca, the empire of Malacca. And when you think of Malacca, what do you think about? It's the fact that from, you know, being that really interesting amalgamation of Hinduism and Buddhism, suddenly you have the Sultan embracing Islam. And that was the height of Malay civilization. <laughs> and I am laughing at it, not because I'm making fun of it, but I feel that it is a distortion of what history is all about. Mm. Because if you're going to address the 14th century, and really highlight that, why don't you highlight whatever that came before that as well? Because that's part of the formation of one's identity anyway, mm. right? Nobody talks about the fact that before that, we were <laughs> Hindus and we go on before that, we were animists. Yeah, That has to be part of it. You have to take it all, no? Mm. So yeah, so I experienced it in the 80s, I experienced it in the 90s, and I don't know if it has paused for a while I think it's still there mm. it has always been there maybe just now with social media it's a little bit more obvious mm. yeah I think I think maybe that's my exposure because I'm not Malay um mm. although I do read like Malay stuff quite a bit like Mastika you know growing up everyone has oh I love Mastika <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is my idea of Malay culture you know like ghost yeah, like conspiracies i love oh, i love mastika i actually feel like when when i read mastika i feel full on malayu you know i'm like yeah this is my world you know <laughs> the scene and the unseen together this is my reality <laughs> but but publications like mastika it's mm. it's creative writing um, of course right um and it's and it's sensational <laughs> writing as well yeah and, and we obviously have very creative writers and you know artists um using the malay language but do we have the vocabulary to or the cultural um practices to discuss serious issues in the malay language like academic stuff like policies and philosophy and without the ability to do so or the interest to do so mm. does that exclude a portion of the population that only speaks malay um, from mm. having access to valuable information and therefore making them more susceptible to misinformation mm. that's a that's a big question so you know you started off saying you know whether or not the language itself is capable of discussing really serious topics right yes of course it is <laughs> we do have the vocabulary for it but the question would be whether or not people have access to that 
wealth of the vocabulary as opposed mm. to the ones that you see, you know, being termed Bahasa Malaysia. Like for me, just to write a poem, and this is again, just as an example, like if I was just to use the same words that have been used on mass media or in textbooks, I cannot write that poem, <laughs> you know? I can't, you know? It, it sounds horrible. It would sound like a user manual. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right, yeah. So I, one of the, the few people that I have discovered over those years of my own exploration of Malay identity and Malay language is this, I'm gonna share it to you. Kasim Ahmad. Okay. Yeah, so Kasim Ahmad is obviously a sastrawan, you know, um, a national laureate, but he is also a literary critic. And um. while I, why I'm pointing this out is because what he talks about is not just about poetry, you know, like Malay poetry, you're talking about nationalism, politics, history, mm -hmm. anthropology and everything. He is very academic. And he does that so beautifully that I'm not sort of, you know, dozing off halfway, which happens a lot when I read academic bahasa. Because <laughs> it's so dry. <laughs> but I do that too with English um, journal articles, so maybe it's just me. <laughs> I think it's everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that is so bloody dry. Oh, Lord. <laughs> So yes, definitely we are, we do have the vocabulary for it, but whether or not we are exposed to it as a different thing altogether, whether we are encouraged to use it mm. in that discipline, that's another question altogether. Um, but does it, so the question would be this, right? Like the question that I'm trying, I'm trying to hold on to it so that I don't digress, you know, whether or not it actually creates this barrier that there are those who cannot access that information. Mm. I think, yeah, for sure. And um, for a while, I mean, if you can buy the book, if you can go to an event where that person is there to give a presentation, then that's a different thing. But yeah, I'm sure that there are people who are not accessing and can't access it yeah. because of different reasons. Yeah. Just before the pandemic, I, it was when I started engaging more on like discourse in Bahasa, like attending actual like events where mm. I think there's one that was organized by Refsa with uh, Gonawan from Indonesia. So he was using Bahasa Indonesia. Okay. okay. Uh, but because, you know, his background is in journalism, but he does a little bit more of like social political commentary. And it's just so beautiful because yes, it is academic use of the language, but there's always, I feel like, something poetic about about yeah. this language you know the way it's presented it's like oh it's so beautiful <laughs> and it's hard to explain that to someone who doesn't at least understand some Malay, right you know yeah I agree I agree I mean like I myself you know as, as a fan of um, Indonesian literature like I look at the way they use language and you know you know you're talking about poets who are you know poets of the people right mm. And the way that they use language is so beautiful. And not to say that we don't have this poets in Asia. We do have quite a few, right? Quite a number of them, actually. But um, I think it has also something to do with the way it's being said. Mm. I don't know why, but whenever you, let's just say, so you may disagree with me, but when I listen to how Bahasa is being um, spoken, it sounds really, it's quite rough. It's less mm. musical than Bahasa in Asia. 
but that's again it's just a personal sort of opinion but then if you were to listen to those who are from the northern part of Malaysia and even you have you know those who are from east Malaysia like Sabah and Sarawak I think they are beautiful you know the way that they speak the language as well it's just that it is not the Baku and version <laughs> <laughs> slash standard version <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, I, I I always enjoy our conversation, Shina, but um, I feel like we need to we need to wrap up. Maybe if you could uh recommend some books or other other publications online or offline, um, for media in Bahasa that um we could uh, maybe check out. So, like I mentioned earlier, so this book um that is entitled Kasim Ahmad. Dialogue dengan Sastrawan, so the dialogue with the National Laureate. So that is a really good book. I, he, I think he has managed to sort of write, communicate both in text as well as in his speech in the way that I aspire to do as well. That's a really great one. And this is an old one, Angin Dari Gunung, The Wind from the Mountains. And um, it's an anthology of short stories written by writers and I think it's beautiful that was I received this as a birthday birthday gift when I was um I think 11 years old so I still have it with me the same exact copy I revisit it once and time and time again and right now I am reading this book so it's called Muda dan Melayu Young and Malay Mm-hmm. So this is going to be quite interesting because, you know, it says here, membesar dalam kepelbagaian budaya Malaysia, you know, being mm-hmm. Malay and growing up in a multicultural nation. That touches a little bit on what we were discussing earlier, no? I would love yeah. to to hear your yeah. analysis of that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, I'll share with you, hopefully. That's Sheena Baharuddin, Assistant Professor of Literature at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia campus, on being a multilingual multimedia creator. If you would like to join me for conversations like this on the starting block, get in touch at tinacamilla.substack.com. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't, and if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with someone. To the next one, goodbye for now.